0: Good morning. It's June 587 BC. Jerusalem has held out against the vastly superior Babylonian army for more than two years. She's surrounded and the food is all gone. And King Nebuchadnezzar has come to punish Jerusalem's King Zedekiah for his betrayal. And King Nebuchadnezzar is in no hurry. That night, the Babylonians finally break through the city walls of Jerusalem. It's over. No one stands to fight. They just run away into the night. Through the gate near the king's garden, and out into the night they go. They never have a chance. The Babylonians catch up with them down the mountain in the plains of Jericho. Zedekiah is captured along with his sons. Now you know how this goes. First, they murder his sons. Then they gouge out Zedekiah's eyes and they bind him and they take him away. The Babylonians are only just getting started. They then loot the temple of all of its treasures. Then they torch the temple along with the king's palace and all of the houses in the city. And then they rip down the city walls. They execute all of the city's top officials. They do what they want with the people Some they leave dead, some wish they were dead. Many are led away as slaves, a few are left behind. Jerusalem, the glorious city of Kings David and Solomon, lies in ruins. The temple epicenter of honor and glory and hope is an empty, burnt-out shell. God's promises to his people and their dreams for freedom are shattered into oblivion. This is Lamentations 1. Now we hear the anguish of those who are left. And we may not want to listen. And we may not agree with some of their conclusions. We may be shocked by their impertinence, but we will listen nonetheless. As we heard in that wonderful Bible reading, we have one character seen from two angles in this first poem of Lamentations. The character is the city of Jerusalem. She is a weeping widow, inconsolable in her grief, we watch her. She is destitute and abandoned. She is craving our pity and our listening ear. And then we hear her speak, and we hear the causes of her destitution. In Israel's history, the covenant relationship between God and Israel had often been portrayed as an exclusive and loving marriage. Think of the prophet's Hosea, and Jeremiah. This image is used positively. God loves us, said the people of Israel, like the best, loving, most faithful husband. And it's also used negatively. We, the people of Israel, have been faithless. We have been adulterous. We have run after other lovers. And so choosing this image for Jerusalem as a widow who's been abandoned, reminds us of all this history that there is between God and his people Israel. In chapter 1, we hear the immediate causes of Jerusalem's anguish. We, We hear her talk about the wounds that she first notices as she crawls out of the rubble. And there are three in particular that we'll focus on today. First, she feels destitute because the city is deserted. Which you can see in verse 1. How deserted lies the city once so full of people. Everyone has gone. Jerusalem is empty. Jerusalem should be, for all of those who've lived there and enjoyed living there, a bustling center of celebration, celebration thronging with pilgrims filled with dancing and joy. But there is no one there, and no one is coming. It must be, uh, we imagine, like waking up in many Turkish and Syrian towns and villages today, that numbing sense of where are the people? Where has everybody gone? Where are the familiar noises and smells and signs of activity and life? Jerusalem is grieving a catastrophic loss of community. For us, I guess it would potentially be like turning up at Wembley uh, for a game, only to find that the stadium is in ruins and there are rats picking uh, over the rubbish. It's the wrong kind of peace. It's not quiet secluded gentle peace it's peace because no one is there almost everybody has been taken secondly Jerusalem feels destitute because she has been violated the poet's language is bold it's unrelenting you heard it rape was one of the ugliest weapons of ancient war and it has been ever since But there is a wider, deeper sense that the invading army were an uninvited, catastrophic violation of the whole city with all that attending sense of shame and disgust and anguish. And we see it particularly in verse 10. The enemy laid hands on all her treasures. She saw pagan nations enter her sanctuary those you had forbidden to enter your assembly. And this crushing sense of violation is only deepened by the mocking of those who've shamed her. They have no shame. In fact, they are multiplying her pain with their mockery and their taunts and their derision. As invading armies have so often done, the Babylonians have crushed the spirits of the city, as well as bringing down its bricks and mortars. Only shame and only self-loathing and only despair remain. And then third, and most painfully, she begins to ponder why this has happened. Of course, echoing a question That escapes the the lips of all those who suffer. Why has this happened? She begins to think. She has always seen the world. And she's always seen herself primarily through the eyes of faith. And through the eyes of faith in Israel's covenant God. So we're not surprised that some of her immediate thoughts are about God's part in her destitution. We see it in verse 5. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Or in verse 8. Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. Now, it might well be our first instinct if we sat down across a table with Lady Zion, quickly to refute this line of self recrimination. It's not your fault, we might find ourselves saying. And we will return to this theme again and again in the weeks to come. So we're not going to solve it today. But we do know this. We do know that God has repeatedly confronted Jerusalem, particularly through his prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah had warned her again and again about her intolerable social injustice. About her religious hypocrisy, about her idolatry, and about her over-reliance on foreign kings, warning that this very destruction that she witnessed would come, and it would it would be destruction at the hands of a godless tyrant like Nebuchadnezzar. So, her guilt is real. Even if the Babylonians are also, through their wanton destruction and taking of life, just as guilty. You may have noticed at the end of chapter one that just begins to seep out that even in her mourning, she recognizes that uh, the Babylonian army have uh, acted in utter excess. And however justified, uh, the punishment might have been, they have massively overstepped the mark. And so there is a calling from Jerusalem that the sins of the Babylonians are also seen and are made right by God. We've heard what happened, a terrifying citywide destruction of people and purpose, a city left destitute. We've heard what she feels in the aftermath, sickened by the silence, violated and mocked, guilty, angry, sensing that the punishment, if that is what it is, does not fit the crime. The image that we hear five times in Lamentations 1 is comfortless. It's there in verse 2, uh, but also in many other places. Uh, Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her now we recognize this don't we from our own experience even if our own experience is not as violent or as overwhelming as Jerusalem's suffering is isolating suffering cuts us off from other people but also from God Joy is often the reverse. Joy often is something that naturally bonds us with other people. And joy is an emotion and a sense of being that is easy to share with God. It's comfortable to be around God when we are experiencing joy. But suffering isolates. There are two things that we can do about that today. First, we learn to excel as comforters and that will mean that we need to rebuke something that is in every single one of us we rebuke the selfishness and the fear inside us that resists the needs and suffering of others I don't have to tell you about this you know this you know that as you In a sense, as you assess and view the suffering of others, there is a conversation that goes on in our own heart. And we don't want to be involved. We don't want to be caught up in that. We haven't got the time, the energy, the finance, whatever it is, to be involved. And so we find ourselves standing aside. Godly, compassionate people are comforters. And of course, uh, there are many of us who could, in a sense, tell uh, how wonderful it has been to be part of a church community uh, that does this. We recognize hurt and anguish in other people. And when we see it, what do we do? We bring comfort. We bring peace we bring solidarity, we bring understanding, we bring a prayerful and faithful presence to those who, in their isolation, may well feel that God has deserted them. One of the reasons that the Western church's neglect of lament is such a big deal and is such a weakness Is precisely because we live in a culture that is framed by anxiety, by meaninglessness, and by emptiness. And yet we never express any of those things in our church. So we are even less honest than the self deceiving culture in which we live. So we must. Learn to excel as comforters because we understand more deeply than most that suffering isolates and that to suffer means that people are often left comfortless so we strive not just within this community but in the communities and the families of which we are a part to excel as comforters. Second, we can learn from Jerusalem's lonely grief. Right now, Lamentations 1, God seems resolutely silent to her pleas. Well, she is undaunted by that silence. Many of us, in similar situations, probably not as intense As hers. Many of us will have been daunted by that silence and will have given up or will have just crawled away into the night. She is undaunted by God's silence. She will keep on asking, she'll keep on weeping, and she will keep on waiting because ultimately she has nowhere else. To go. In verse 20, she says, See, Lord, how distressed I am. I am in torment within, and in my heart I am disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. At the first poem's end, she won't take no for an answer. So she finishes the first of her four A to Zs of grief. She is holding on. We might say she is holding out for God's compassion and for God's justice to be more fully realized. Now, I would not dream of patronizing anybody here or to belittle your pain or to tell you, hey, everything's okay. But I can encourage you not to let go of God today and not to walk away and not to crawl into the night, not to conclude that he has sold you out. Seek God. Remind God. Let your prayers both refine and interrogate your pain because many of us who have been Christians for a while find that our suffering refines us as God teaches us perseverance and depth of faith don't be daunted God has gifted you these words of grief use them and own them and wait to see how God answers them. i are going to have a little moment of silence now where I will lead some thoughts that will then lead into our prayers. And then once we've prayed together, then the musicians will lead us in a song of lament. Let's sit quietly together. We have heard the wounds that hurt most as Jerusalem staggered from the ruins. Loneliness. Violation. Guilt. Confusion. We are not competing with her today. But as we sit quietly... Ask yourself, what are the wounds that you carry today? Particularly, what are the wounds that you could never tell God? Decide on a word or a couple of words uh, that sum those up best uh, for you. Let the power of these words unsettle you. Let the power of these words bring you new clarity, new honesty before God. God, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the words in Lamentations. We thank you for the words that we have cried quietly in our own hearts today. God, we are sorry for hiding these wounds away. And we are sorry too for the things that we have done or the things that we have not done that have hurt others or that have meant that we now suffer. We are sorry. We are sorry, God, for our failure to listen to others, for those whom we leave comfortless. Forgive us, God. And Lord, we bring to you those words that are foremost in our own hearts. And we say to you, please do something, God. We invite you and we implore you. Please bring justice and peace and grace and new beginnings. Please prepare our hearts for what you want to do. Please, Lord, help us as a church to lament together. And forgive us for those moments when this has been a place of discomfort for those who are in discomfort. Lord, please help us to listen. To the voices of those who are suffering most. Help us to listen to those voices in our community, in our country, and across the world. Lord, please teach us to excel as comforters and to recognize. How uh, isolating the suffering of others can be. Please, God, bind up our wounds. Please lead us to godly repentance for the things that we have done and got wrong. Please, gracious God, Encourage us and build us up. Please, God, stand in the way of the tyrant and the merciless and the graceless in our world. And please, gracious God, help us to wait for your grace and for your new beginnings. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.